Hello and welcome to the G2 podcast. Thanks very much. Um, I'm just going to start with a quick demonstration. Um, I'm not quite sure how many of my kids are going to come and help me with this. Um, and um, hopefully both of them. Um, and now I've got, I've got one. I've got shaking of heads. Come here, James. Come on, let's do it quickly. I know that looked a bit weird, but I'll explain. So I was doing that. My boys love doing that, apart from in church in front of lots of people, um, <laughs> when they don't want to do it at all. Um, and I was doing it with them one day when suddenly flashed through my head this idea that if I dropped James at the wrong moment while I was doing that, he'd crack his head open on the floor, which is wooden floor and then it's concrete underneath. And I had this sudden freak of, crikey, what, you know, what's going on? He's got an implicit trust that actually I'm never going to drop him and everything's going to be okay, which is, which is great for him, but maybe not for me. Um, and it's suddenly, it's funny how kids bring out that feeling in you, that sudden realisation. I mean, how often do we just go to our father and go, well, that's okay, you know what you're doing, we're just going to leave it up to you, and we, we trust it. Why is it kids always show us the best in, or the worst possibly, in, in understanding our father? Um, so, we're talking about Jonah. Um, I'm going to take my glasses off, otherwise I can't read what, I'm, what I've written. Um, but it doesn't mean I can't see you. I, I can't work out whether that's a good thing or not. Um, so, Jonah, who is he? So he's a man from Gath Hefer, um, and he was asked by God to go to Nineveh um, and tell them that they were about to, they had to repent, otherwise God was going to raise Nineveh to the ground and kill all of them and turn everything into dust. Um, he didn't like the idea of that. He wanted to serve God, but he didn't really, really like the idea of going to Nineveh. So instead, he ran away, got on a ship, and went to Tarshish, or, or attempted to go to Tarshish. Um, but there was this massive storm blew up, and they drew lots to see who was at fault, because obviously the sailors had watched the insurance adverts and knew that where there's blame, there's a claim. Um, and so... Um, and, and Jonah lost. So they threw Jonah overboard, and uh, the storm died down. Um, Jonah got eaten by a big fish, um, and then eventually the fish vomited Jonah back onto a beach. Um, God said to him, no, no, you really do need to go to Nineveh. Um, and so he went, and surprise for him, they, um, they repented, which is not what he wanted. And then he, so then he actually got in a big sulk and got really upset because um, he was hoping to see a bit of fire and brimstone and he didn't see any of that. Um, and so it all got, for him, it was all really sad. Although obviously um, God um, delivered him what, you know, God got what he wanted, Jonah didn't get what he wanted. So, you know, you sort of look at this and think, well, how does any of this fit into what we're talking about at the moment? So, um, have you ever felt like you want to run away from something rather than do it? Um, I mean, I know I have. In fact, when Hannah ran me up and asked me to do this, I thought, how can I say no? In fact, it's really unfair. I can't say no without sounding like Jonah to do a talk about Jonah. So um, I still got a bone to pick with Hannah about that, but we'll go into that later. So if you've heard my ignition talk, um, then you will know that I really like looking at the context of the Bible. I really think that really helps. And the Old Testament is just so full of it that if you don't look into the context, you miss so much. And Jonah's, what I think, what really is one of those. We first come across it as kids. We get taught it at school. You get the Jonah story. Um, but I don't think you get the full picture. You just got the basics of it. So today I thought we'd, you know, we'll, we'll dig in a bit further and try and get a bit more. Um, and the first thing to talk about is what type of story is it? Um, 
it might seem a bit weird, but there's four thoughts about what story this is. Is it just a good story? Is it prophetic? Is it literal? Or is it satire? Now, the reason for that is, one, is it a good story? Um, well, it could well be. Um, there's actually a lot of... Um, uh, there's a lot of things in it which show it's not quite right. So it might just be a good story. But shock, horror, it, something in the Bible not being real? Is that possible? Well, actually, Jesus tells a lot of parables, and they aren't actually real. They don't really happen. They are just stories. So it is possible that that's what happened. Secondly, is it literal? Well, Jonah appears in two kings. We know he existed. He was a prophet. So it is literal as well. He was actually there. Um, then we've got three, is it prophetic? Well, we've just heard that Jesus talks about Jonah, so it could be prophetic. And fourthly, satire. The reason why some people think it's satire is because it has exaggeration in it, and very noticeable exaggeration. Um, and the way the story plan pays out is the opposite of how most of the stories in the Bible plays out. But actually, I'm not going to go into any of that, so I'm sorry, I'm not going to reveal which one that I think it is. Um, Instead, I'm just going to go through it and hopefully explain a bit more. So, but first, we need to talk about chronology. So, um, you probably noticed the Bible isn't in order. Um, and if you've never read the Bible in order, you can get hold of chronological Bibles, or you can look on your app and, and reset it chronologically. Um, I did a yearly uh, reading plan chronologically, and it's worth doing it. it put so much better understanding, I think, into the Bible, if you've ever read it chronologically. So Jonah is at the end of the Old Testament because he's one of the minor prophets, and they group them all together right at the end. But actually, if it's a chronological Bible, it's about halfway through. Um, and it, in terms of time frame, it's somewhere between 824 and 745 BC. And I recognize that probably doesn't mean very much. So um, to put it into context, Carthage was being founded by the Phoenicians, um, and the Greeks were having their first ever Olympic Games. So it probably gives you a little better, better understanding about it. Um, so then we'll go into the geography, and I've got, I've got a map. Um, so, um, which hopefully you can see, it's a bit, it's a, it is a bit difficult to see with the light that's coming in, um, but I'll, I'll wander over and, and explain a few things. So Gath Heifer is where Jonah came from, which is this, it's here, this, this home, the home picture, that's, that's Gath Heifer. It's just north of Nazareth, um, it still exists today as ruins. Um, and then, so then we get to Jonah 1, uh, verses 1 to 3, and it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, or Joppa, depending on how you see it, and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So here we have Jonah being told to do something by God, but he freaks out and goes the other way. Now, I guess, I mean, we've all had situations where we've not wanted to do something gone the other way, but the extremes of this become quite apparent when you start to look at the map. Nineveh is the thunderbolt you can just about see on the right-hand side. Tarshish, we think, is that one on the far left. Um, so he actually went for, tried to go further away than he was from Nineveh. Um, but we'll sort of ex explore that a little bit further. Um, so Nineveh is actually part of Mosul, the city of, in Iraq. 
um, and it's the the area where the governor the governor is the governor is the governor of Nineveh. It's difficult to say that. Um, so Nineveh is still there as a as a name. Um, and um, there were some historic parts of Nineveh. Unfortunately, ISIS destroyed them when they occupied Mosul um, uh, about five, six years ago. Joppa has got lots of names. Joppa, Joppa, Jaffa. Um, Yafo is the port that Jonah sailed from. Um, so that's the, that's the boat picture down there. Um, and that's actually part of Tel Aviv. Uh, it's still there today. Um, very famous place because it's such a historical port. Um, it's the port that, um, it appears quite a lot in the Bible, it's the port that Peter went from when he went on mission. Um, and it's also the port that King Solomon's metal ships docked at. It's also the first place in the Middle East that had a railway station. So there you are, railway fact into a church talk. Who thought you could do it? Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Tarshish. Now, Tarshish is actually really tricky. Um, I have put it on the map. And I'll explain that. Um, the, the, the blob is Sardinia. Um, so Tarshish is thought to be Sardinia, Spain, Cornwall, Turkey, Egypt, or Libya. Basically, nobody really knows. And um, it's such secrecy. It's such, there's such intrigue about it. All we know for sure is that King Solomon got his metals from there, silver, lead, tin, copper, um, which is part of the reason why Cornwall appears as one of the, one of the options. Um, and it, even as it resulted in, in, in books, I mean, there's a, there's a great story book called King Solomon's Minds by Hugh Ryder Haggard. If you ever want a story, it's a bit of its time, but a sort of ripping yarn type book, it's well worth a read, particularly because it's got British explorers going around Africa with only one trouser leg on. It's, um, it's, it's interesting, it's, it's weird, but it's interesting. Um, there is a place called Tarsus in, in modern Turkey, or Turkey, as, we, as we're supposed to call it now, uh, and Tartusus in Spain. Um, but actually, more recently, there's been some silver hoards found in Israel, uh, and the chemical composition of that silver is the same as silver in silver mines in Sardinia. So the assumption now is that Sardinia is where Tarsus was. So he was actually trying to go quite a long way. Then we get to Jonah 1, uh, chapters 4 to 16, um, where it describes the whole sea journey, um, which, which we know quite a lot about. One of the bits that I wanted to highlight quickly in this is it's always assumed that Jonah drew the short straw and then therefore the sailors chucked him overboard. But actually, if you read it, that's not what happens. What actually happens is he draws the short straw and he knows that it, his, it, he's at fault, so he tells the sailors to throw him overboard. And the sailors refuse. They're professional sailors. The last thing they do is kill people. They actually try to row to land. And it's only when that doesn't work and the, and the ship is, is in turmoil that he then turns around and says, all right, we will do it. The, the sailors turn around and say, yeah, we will do it. But first they pray to God and say, please don't judge us for doing this. Then they throw him overboard. And it is worth noting that. Um, so we're going to look at zoology for a little bit. Um, in Jonah 1.17, now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. So this part of the story has a little bit of controversy around it. You might have, you might have come across it before. Firstly, was it a fish or a whale? Um, I'm not sure that's that important. The Hebrew term is dag gado, which just means great fish. And in those days, they didn't actually understand the difference between fish and whale. So it could have been either. Um, and then secondly, could it happen? Um, and hopefully we've got a little video that might show something. 
It will be without sound because it's got swearing in it. It doesn't want to play. Right, well, I'll tell you what was in it then, and then you can look it up yourself on YouTube. Uh, it was an incident in California where there was a kayak with two women in it, and it got taken by a humpback whale. Um, and if you go on YouTube and have a look, there is actually the video from one of the people's helmet cam of when they got taken by the humpback whale. Um, it is worth noting that humpback whales do not eat humans. Um, it was going for the bait ball. There we go. Here it is. So there you are. Mm. Yeah, so it's a humpback. Humpbacks can't eat humans. Their throat isn't actually big enough. It's only Their throat is actually only about this big. There was a bait ball that they'd put down to try and attract the whales that was next to the kayak, and that's, that's why it happened. There's only actually two animals that could eat a human. One's a great white shark, and the other's a sperm whale. Great white sharks tend to chew their food before they eat them, so it might not have been a great white shark. But actually, I'm not convinced that is so important because lots of theologians and scholars get really hung up about this idea that a fish, a whale, swallowed a human being. But at the same time, are quite happy that the Red Sea parted and Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Is it not possible that this is a miracle too? Um, and therefore, actually, we should concentrate on the story and not get hung up on the fact that um, Jonah ended up inside a big fish. So when we get into the fish, chapter 117 finishes with, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And chapter 2-1, which is the next verse, says, then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the fish's belly. And it seems to me there might be a little bit of glossing over here. He's gone from being in the boat to three days later praying, and there's been nothing else that's been talked about. Um, I think that even if Jonah was ready to die when he said to the sailors, please throw me overboard, I can't help feeling that his human brain, when he touched the water, would have gone, help, save me. Uh, and he might have actually fought, and he might have had an adrenaline rush that tried to keep him alive. Um, when I had my near-drowning experience, um, I didn't um, take it easily. I got a big adrenaline rush, and I will tell you about it, and two things to tell you about it. One, spoiler, um, I survived. Um, two, um, when I told my dad about this soon after it happened, he said, that's a story not to tell your mother. Um, so my mother still hasn't heard this, but you're going to hear it, and I'm not going to send her the YouTube video of this talk. Um, so second year of uni had just finished. I was in Newcastle University sailing team at the time. Four of us decided we'd go for a sail, two boats, laser twos for those of you into sailing. Um, and we thought, it's a lovely day. Uh, it's blue sky, it's a Simpsons sky. You know, start with Simpsons, clouds, lovely sunny day. Um, nice breeze for sailing. It was the 1990s, absolutely perfect. Um, and we set out, and it was all fantastic. And once we got out there, we realized actually from time out this was that the wind was a little bit stronger than we expected, but it was still okay. Um, it was blowing down the Tyne and out to sea. And we went on a few what are called screaming reaches, which is where you travel right angles to the wind. And you can get going really fast, and it's really good fun. 
added to which then um, the crew of which I was a crew member sit out on trapezes. And that is where you have a wire from near the mast and it comes down, it's got a hook and you hook it onto a harness and it allows you to stand on the very edge of the boat and lean out. So you're fully out over the water and none of you is in the boat. Um, it's great fun, it's really, really good fun. Unfortunately, then a squall came down and both boats flat over, capsized. That's quite normal in sailing. There's nothing, to, there's nothing too much to worry about being capsized. It happens all the time. Um, you stand on the centerboard, that's the keel. Up it comes, get back in. Bit wet, who mind? Who cares about that? Off we go again. Unfortunately, it was so windy, uh, we couldn't get the boat back up. And what you do then is you lower the sail because that takes away what's stopping you it come back up again. The problem is the sail also stops a boat rolling completely upside down when it's lying on its side. So I pulled the sail down and it rolled upside down. And as it rolled upside down, the trapeze hook from the wire hooked into my harness and dragged me under. And so I was left facing up at the sky like this with the water sort of around my face uh, with the waves washing over me, which felt like for hours and was probably actually only for a few seconds before my helm unclipped me from my harness and I swam out. Later on, when they recovered the boats, it's a, I'm not going to go into the full story of why the boats had to be recovered, um, the harness was actually still clipped in. But I didn't have a happy experience being nearly drowned. I did not want to drown. And I don't think Jonah did either, despite what it might say in that bit. So, and actually, once you start looking into it a bit further, you can see that Jonah wasn't too happy with it either. Um, he... In, Chapter 2, verse 2, he says when he starts praying, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Sheol is Hebrew for hell. He was in hell. He said, I'm in hell. Help me. Get me out of here. And then in chapter 2, verse 10, After his prayer, the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. When I um, mentioned this to Eli a couple of nights ago, I was putting him to bed, he said, so he was covered in fish vomit then. Yes, he was. How gross is that? So then um, we get to chapter 3, um, and uh, this time he's going to Nineveh again. So a uh, good map's back up again. Um, so um, this is the chapter that causes the problem with literal translation. Because at verse 1, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent, that's three days across to walk across it, and Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. So part one is a problem because he talks about it being a three-day to walk across, and that's bigger than even current day London. So there's definitely issues there. But secondly, the bit about the one day walk. Well, firstly, it could be just exaggeration. Two weeks ago, I carted a ton of soil from outside the front of our house, wheeled it around the back and put it into some raised beds and it took me one hour, 20 minutes. When I tell you that story next year, it'll have taken me under an hour. This story, this story was written down 300 years after it happened, so how much exaggeration do you think might have come in? I think there could be quite a lot. But there is actually another thought to this. If you, I was talking about the fact I was going to do this talk with um, one of my colleagues who's a Muslim, um, and he's named his son Eunice, which is the uh, Muslim name for Jonah. And he, so he knows this story 
quite well. And he said in the Quran, it's very clear that Jesus, uh, sorry, Jesus, God calling Jonah a second time happens a long time after the first part of the story. They're not one, one straight after the other. So Jonah could quite easily have been one day away from Nineveh when he started the walk. Um, so I don't think we can actually worry too much about what happens there. Uh, so then we get to chapter three and four. And we get to a really interesting bit. So chapter 3, Jonah tells Nineveh that they will die in 40 days if they don't repent. So they do. Well, hey. Only Jonah doesn't see it that way and sulks and tells God that he knew God would forgive them. So he couldn't see the point of him coming to Nineveh. He even goes as far as to suggest he wanted to see Nineveh punished and he's sulky because it isn't going to happen. And that's how the story's always been told, that Nineveh is this really nasty, horrible place that should have been shot with fire and brimstone and whatever, blah blah It's really bad, Ninevites are evil, etc. So if we pull this back to what Jesus said, we would get back to Matthew eventually. I, 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 I did assure you that you, we would. Um, in Matthew, the Pharisees are asking Jesus for a sign, and he replies that the wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of Jonah. So what is he meaning here? What he's basically doing is comparing the people of Nineveh with the Pharisees. He's basically saying they're the same, but he's saying the difference is because the Ninevites have repented, they are better than the Pharisees, and therefore the Ninevites will judge the Pharisees because all they are trying to do is trick Jesus. They are not actually trying to learn anything. Ow, hurts, doesn't it? Jesus also says that like Jonah spent three days in the great fish, which Jonah himself has called Sheol, then Jesus will spend three days in hell. He foretells his own death here. Then we get to the bit with Queen of the South, which is um, not a football team. Um, Jesus says the Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. And this is a reference to 1 Kings 10, Queen Sheba. Queen Sheba is seeking the truth, and she hears about Solomon, so she goes to see him and to ask him, the Bible actually says, to ask him some hard questions. I love that, hard questions. Um, and in verse 6, she says, I, I, I really love this bit, it says, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe the words until I came and saw with my own eyes. And indeed, the half was not told me. In other words, she's saying it's twice as good as I was told. This is so much better. Your wisdom and prosperity exceed the fame of which I heard. Happy are your people and happy are those your servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God. So Jesus is being very clear. What he's saying is the Pharisees think they're being godly because they know the scriptures, but they don't know God. And he's actually throwing the scriptures back at them and saying, you know the scriptures, but you don't understand what they mean. And that it is perfectly okay to ask for a sign if you're seeking the truth, but to ask me for a sign just because you're trying to trick me is completely wrong. And so I, I think it is actually really important that we just mention this, that if you've ever read this passage and thought, crikey, I've asked for a sign, that's really bad news. Jesus isn't saying that's bad news to ask for a sign. If you're asking for a sign for truth, that is perfectly fine. So just to finish up, um, I've got some questions. You might think they're hard questions. Um, and I've got a little encouragement for you as well. 
So question number one is, what is your Nineveh? What is it that you feel compelled or asked to do? What scares you so much that even though you know you're supposed to do it, you want to avoid it? Two, what is your Tarshish? What are you doing to avoid doing what God wants you to do? Three, what belly are you in and fighting to get out of? What do you need to repent from? It's really interesting because in this bit, actually, if we look back to the story of Jonah, once Jonah's in the fish, the fish is actually doing all the physical exercise. Once he'd stopped fighting and started praying, he was in a much better place. So when will, at some point, we're all going to be inside a fish. When will you let your fish do all your physical exercise for you so you can pause and repent and pray? So, but just to finish, I want to give you a little encouragement because I know that can feel quite, that's quite heavy, that's quite hard. Um, there's a really good bit in Jonah that I think quite often gets mixed, missed out and it's, and it's just worth noting because at some point we're all going to be in this position where we um, go to, effectively go to Tarshish. We're going to do something that we shouldn't do or that we feel we've been called to do something so we go and do the other, the other thing or go and do something else. But in Jonah chapter 116, when it talks about the sailors after they've thrown Jonah out, the storm stops and the, jo and the, and the sailors started worshipping God. But it doesn't just say they worship God, it says they made vows. So the implication is that they actually turned from their old ways and turned to God. And so I think it's really important to remember that you've got absolutely no idea what God's doing with your actions even when those actions aren't the ones that he asked you to do. Thank you.